0: As we come now to consider God's word together, let's pause together in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we need you to speak and we need to listen, to learn and to put into practice what you are teaching to us. Help us to understand how to effectively fulfill the requirements that you have set before us for the glory of your name the good of our brothers and sisters in christ for in his name we pray these things amen for the past few years each september we have shared in a series of four sermons on what are the basics of congregational life gathering going giving and gifting I was listening earlier this week to the message Scott preached last September and marvelling at the very different context into which he was speaking than that which is before me this morning. What a difference a year makes. Yet, while global circumstances might be altered radically, the core truths of Scripture remain unalterable. And there are things that God, through his word, calls his people to do. And whenever, wherever, however, we ought to seek to do them. So this morning we're thinking about gathering. God's people coming together with the purpose of bringing glory to God through our worship and doing good to one another through our acts of service. The word church means a people who have been called together. And gathering is what we do because gatherers is what we are. And as this morning, we jump into the book of Hebrews. We're coming in about three quarters of the way through. And already in those opening nine chapters and even the first part of chapter 10, there has been much important doctrine already shared with the readers. But here in this passage that was read for us by Raymond, the writer is saying that since we have all this doctrinal evidence, Here is wonderful good news. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we have access into the very presence of God. Look down again at verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. This letter is called Hebrews because it was originally addressed to believers who had been raised in the Jewish faith. And as they read these words, they would have found them staggering. For generations, approaching the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, whether in tabernacle or temple, was restricted to one man the high priest, on one day, the day of atonement. And for the rest of the people, for the rest of the time, no one dared to go near to God for fear of death. I am fascinated by this idea that even on that one day, the day of atonement, when the high priest came offering the blood for the sacrifice of the sins of people, he had bells on his robe which rang to indicate to his fellow priests waiting outside that at least he was still alive, he was still moving. And although the first reference to this doesn't appear until uh, somewhere in the 13th century among the Jewish writings, I still quite like the concept that he had a rope wrapped around his waist that, should he be struck down dead before God's awesome holiness, his fellow priests could drag his body out without themselves having to risk stepping too close but what fear and dread were upon the people living under the terms of the old covenant. But now, everything has changed. And what is it that has made the difference? Or who is it who has made the difference? It is because in Christ Jesus we have not just a better high priest, but the perfect high priest that we now can enter into the way that he has opened up for us in our approach to God. Why is Jesus the perfect high priest? Question 25 of the Shorter Catechism tells us that Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. The book of Hebrews unpacks it as follows. Telling us that Jesus is the perfect high priest in his sympathy towards us. We find this in what are familiar words, Hebrews 4:15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then With confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is the perfect high priest in his sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10 verse 14 For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Thirdly, Jesus is the perfect high priest in his satisfaction of God. Hebrews 9, verses 13 to 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. As the perfect high priest, Jesus opens up the way for his people. He's granting to us wonderful access to God. But the world today often forgets that as we possess rights, so also we have the practice of responsibility. The privilege of access means therefore that God's people are duty-bound to do certain things And, and these are listed for us here in the remainder of our passage of study. They are to draw near, to hold fast and to stir up. And I want to look at each of these in turn. We are to draw near and this is our duty to God and its focus is Faith, which you will know is the central theme of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. So we read in verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. At the foot of Mount Sinai, the people of God were instructed to keep their distance, to stay away, because the appropriate sacrifice for sin had not yet taken place. But now, in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are duty-bound to draw near. And note that as we come, we do so being sincere and sanctified. Sincere with a true heart, free from hypocrisy, free from pretense. In our evening services of worship, now we come wearing masks. And there have been numerous comments made about what you might be up to behind your mask, where no one can see. You could be sticking out your tongue, smiling, frowning, singing. No one knows. You can get away with it. But haven't we always been able to fool one another? You can cheerfully greet others claiming that everything is fine and yet inside your heart is breaking. You can smile and say good morning to someone and yet you can harbour anger or even hatred in your heart for that person. You can put on a smart suit with a shine on your shoes. And yet, you can be holding on to shameful sin in your life. The truth is that you can fool all of the people all of the time. But you can fool God none of the time. Our fig leaves of pretense do not frustrate his heart penetrating gaze. And we must draw near to him in sincerity, no pretending, no game playing. And we must draw near as those who are sanctified. When priests were being set apart for the service of God, the blood of the sacrifice was applied to their right ears, their right thumbs and their right big toes. They were sanctified by this cleansing blood from head to toe. Ears for attentive listening to the word of God. Hands for the effective service in the work of God and feet for the enabling to walk in the way of God. And every Christian who, believing in the saving work of the cross and having cried out for forgiveness, possesses a heart cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is our distinguishing feature, and in this alone rests our confidence as we make our approach to God. This is the believer's duty to God. We are to draw near. Secondly, we are to hold fast. And this is our duty to the world. And its focus is upon hope, which is the central theme of Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 23 reads, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Strong winds are blowing through our culture. And those who endeavour to resist them will be buffeted. But nonetheless, we must stand firm. This world desperately needs to see Christians who are steadfast, who are resolute in their faith. People who remain hope-filled, even in what appear to be hopeless situation. When we do, when Christians hold fast, the world always takes notice. As the Apostle Peter states in 1 Peter 3.15, saying that we are always to be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. The following story is One such example of the impact of hope in the heart of an unbeliever. We had George Muller of Bristol on board, said the captain. I'd been on the bridge for 24 hours and never left it. And George Muller came to me and said, Captain, I've come to tell you, I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. It's impossible, I said. Then very well, if your ship cannot take me God will find some other way. I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. Let us go down to the chart room and pray. I looked at that man of God and thought to myself, what lunatic asylum can that man have come from? For I've never heard of such a thing as this. Mr. Muller, I said, do you not know how dense this fog is? No, he replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He knelt down and he prayed a simple prayer. When he had finished, I was going to pray. But he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. As you do not believe, he will answer. And as I believe he has, there is no need whatever for you to pray about it. I looked at him and George Muller said, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years and there has never been a single day I failed to get an audience with the King. Get up, Captain, and open the door and you will find the fog is gone. I got up and the fog indeed was gone. And on that Saturday, George Muller kept his promised engagement. Are you willing to stand out as you make confession of the hope that you have in Jesus? You've got to answer this question. That is, will we see the world won for Jesus through believers becoming more like the world or becoming more like Jesus? Which will it be? And it is as we hold fast to what we believe and let it be known, whatever the cost, that the victory is one. The Apostle John writes in Revelation describing such witness to the world, he says, And they have conquered him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. We are to draw near. That is our duty to God. And we are to hold fast. That is our duty to the world. And thirdly, we are to stir up, and this is our duty, to one another. And its focus is love, which is the central theme of Hebrews chapter 13. Note verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. One of John Wesley's rules of life for church members has been widely adopted by many congregations and denominations. It is this, to watch over one another in love. And this task is worked out in different ways. We are to look out for one another. Unlike Kean, we are our brother, our sister's keeper. We have responsibility to know and care about what is happening in each other's lives. Through an investment of love and time, we can create an atmosphere in which trust is developed and through which those areas of life, usually close to others, might be shared openly. You can't know everyone like this, but you must know someone. So you look out for one another And you look up for one another. You undertake to pray regularly for other members of the congregation, both at formal times of corporate prayer, or in your own personal devotion. You look out, you look up, and you look in on one another. You pick up a phone, you send a text, you knock on a door, write a letter, invite round for coffee. There's no limit of the ways in which we can build up mutual love among the members. Of the congregation. Think of the church, a fellowship of believers being like mountaineers roped together for a dangerous ascent. Consequently, as we climb we are very conscious of the others around us. We know that if they fail, if they fall, they're bringing us down too. So we're looking out for them, we're looking after them, even as we look after ourselves lest we cause others to fall. We are to stir up to be positively provocative in our encouragement of others in their walk with God. And in order to achieve this, we need the words of of verse 25, saying, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In this season, gathering is fraught with difficulty in the current restrictions with COVID-19. Even so, God's children ought not to be deterred from fulfilling their responsibilities to God, to the world and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this day, the writer mentions here, is the day of Christ's return. And it is drawing near, which creates an urgency to fulfilling our duty. Apologies that this illustration will pass some of you by. But those who who watch sport will understand that time determines tactics. Let me use this illustration. Use your imagination. Northern Ireland qualify for the World Cup final, a match against Brazil. Ian Barraclough, that's our new coach, in case you haven't heard of him, has given the team very careful instructions. We're playing a very strict 5-4-1 formation, and the defence is holding out well. But with 10 minutes on the clock, we find ourselves 1-0 down. It's a dodgy penalty, uh, one by Neymar, I'm sure he died. But 1-0 down, then we see there are five minutes of injury time being signalled. And tactics change. Johnny Evans is ordered to go up front. We're going to hoof the ball into the box and hoping that someone will latch on to a knockdown. We've lost a vital defender. But our strong defensive tactics will not help us win the day. Still 1-0 down, one minute to go. We've won a corner and the goalkeeper, Billy Peacock Farrell, is ordered to get up to the front. Now, no one is guarding the net. Why this madness? Well, because time is determining tactics and we're willing to take every risk necessary to save the day and gain the victory. And this is not a time for restraint. The day is approaching. And we must deeply immerse ourselves into the lives of our brothers and sisters. For this is a season of much-needed encouragement, of stirring up to be amply provided. It may be for some that the only opportunity to gather is through a screen. Praise God for this. But for many, as in-person activities resume, we can meet together for worship for Bible study or for prayer. So may we not neglect these things, but all the more treasure and utilize these opportunities. May God enable us to be faithful to the challenges he sets before us and to fulfill the responsibilities to which he calls us. Let's pray together. Father, we understand that for all kinds of reasons, gathering is difficult in this season. But may we not neglect that to which you call us. May we understand that as we come together, it is a deep blessing for our souls. It is a rich benefit for fellow believers. And it is an instrument that will ultimately impact this world for your glory. Father, we pray that you would open up increasing opportunity for worship that is meaningful and helpful together. Give us wisdom, Lord. May we take adequate precautions to ensure everyone's safety. But may we also enjoy that the privilege that is ours to come together as your people to worship before your presence. So, Lord, teach us more about this. Help us to be more effective in being all that you desire us to be. And so we ask and pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our great High Priest. Amen.